Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 175, recorded for the week of July 27th, 2022. AWS reinforces their dislike for Orca security. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. How are you doing? Good, Justin. Yeah. How are you doing? Eh, you know, it's uh, it's near the end of the week, and uh, reinforce just happened, and we have a lot to talk about. But uh, you know, I could uh, I could have done with half the week being not as busy as I was. <laughs> it's been an interesting week for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. Uh, and first of all, for those of you who uh, know that Jeff Barr likes to write a blog post every Prime Day, talk about how AWS delivered the win for Amazon.com. Uh, he has his annual recap uh, blog post. So uh, he's been doing this now for many, many years. He highlights in there. Uh, and as always, he tells us what he bought. Uh, he bought a first aid kit. He, bur- he bought uh, some wood brown filament for his 3D printer and a nonstick frying pan. So just about as exciting as what I ordered for Amazon Prime Day, which was a battery UPS backup. So <laughs> see that, uh, you know, pandemics are good to us. We all have all the things we want and we're just buying essentials on sale. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, the stats, though, are pretty darn impressive. Amazon says Prime members purchased more than 100,000 items per minute during Prime Day. And, of course, AWS was there making sure their systems worked, performed, and sold you the material goods of your dreams. Uh, Aurora had apparently spun up to 5,326 database instances running Postgres SQL and MySQL compatible editions, processing 288 billion transactions, storing 1.8 terabytes of data, and transferring 749 terabytes of data between their systems. Uh, easy to increase the number of instances by 12%, resulting in an overall server equivalent that was only 7% larger than Cyber Monday due to increased adoption of Graviton 2, uh, which basically, if you parse that out there, for uh, Cyber Monday, they had 19% more servers than normal. Uh, now they only have 12 because of Graviton, so that's a pretty good savings if they were paying for these servers, which they don't. Uh, EBS added 152 petabytes of storage, with resulting EBS fleet handling 11.4 trillion daily requests and transferring 532 petabytes daily. But due to the increased efficiency of internal Amazon services, they used about 4% less EBS storage and transferred 13% less data than Prime Day last year, uh, which is always good to figure out while you're spending a lot of your money and optimize. Always a plus. Uh, SES peaked at 33,000 email messages per second. Uh, I wish I could get a quota that high, though, for SES. (laughs) Have you ever tried to do something like that? Never. Uh, SQS set a new traffic record by processing 70.5 million messages per second at peak. Uh, Amazon DynamoDB maintained HA, delivering a single-digit millisecond responses and peaked at 105.2 million requests per second. SageMaker processed over 100 million transactions. QuickSight was used by over 1,000 users spanning 24 countries and served millions of BI queries with a peak of 500 queries per minute per data set. And package planning systems performed 60 million AWS Lambda invocations, processing 17 terabytes of compressed data in S3 and storing 64 million items across Amazon DynamoDB and ElastiCache and served 200 million events via Kinesis and handled 50 million SQS events. So that's a lot of uh, a lot of throughput for Prime Day. I'm not quite sure I understand some of the metrics there. Like if it's 100,000 items a minute being purchased, how, how on earth are they sending 33,000 messages a second by email? Like it just doesn't, doesn't Well, add, I mean, <laughs> you have all kinds of things that happen in email for your purchase, right? You have the purchase, you have the shipping notification, you have, you know, there's like a lot of things that come into that. You have password reset emails going out. You've got, you know, notifications if you have set up price monitors. There's all kinds of things you could do uh, with emails. Yeah, but that's more, that's more emails per minute than items being sold per minute. So I'm not. Fair enough. Like, are they are they talking about AWS as a whole handled all these all, all those things per service, or is that just the impact that Prime had 
on those services. I mean, I didn't write this blog post. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of wonder if there's a little, little spin in here. Yeah. Yeah, it's very possible there's a little spin in it. Still impressive numbers, I think, any way you slice it, whether that's caused by Prime Day or or not, right? If that's that's the peak of email messages, I don't know if I care about you know the, the, the cause of that. It's just the, the blog post is just touting the win of the infrastructure, which is great because as customers like of these cloud hypervisors, this is why you want to pay for these things. Like you want to host so that you can scale up and scale back down. And, and the fact that they're also advertising like the efficiency increases through their prime day operations is pretty great too. And, uh, you know, definitely something that individual companies can look at and try to replicate. Yeah. I kind of wish they'd gone a little bit more into detail about the improvements that Graviton bought. It's um, a, a small percentage number of servers doesn't really tell us much based on the size of servers or anything else. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it depends on the audience, right? Like, we're nerds. We want to know all those details and, and <laughs> so that we can use that in architectural decisions and a whole bunch of other things. And, and most readers are like, cool. <laughs> oh, big numbers. Yeah. Must be, must be good. So they do uh, They do say, and I went into the article because of my, my summary and you know, my summarization of what it had here. Maybe it missed the mark here for SES. So it says, in order to keep Prime Day shoppers aware of the deals and to deliver order confirmations, Amazon Simple Email Service peaked at 33,000 Prime Day email messages per second. So yeah. they're ah, saying so it's just includes Prime the marketing day. spam. Yes, it includes enough. the marketing spam. Wait, wait, you left an item in your shopping cart. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a couple, you know, the SageMaker one uh, piqued my interest when I read through this the first time. And uh, basically they're using SageMaker for the Amazon Robotics Pick Time Estimator, which uses Amazon SageMaker to train a machine learning model to predict the amount of time future pick operations will take processed more than 100 million transactions during Prime Day. So basically they... They basically calculate how long it's going to take for the order to get picked at the warehouse, which must go into calculations of shipping time and all of the delays and some of that. Because if you, you know, if there's a queue of 10,000 pick operations and then you have an idea of what those things are from how long it takes to go get the item based on size and weight, that you could calculate out a more accurate estimate of when they can ship. That's awesome. Which is kind of cool. That's super awesome. <laughs> I wonder if they actually optimize uh, the order of picking. You know, once they've got ten thousand orders in a batch, if they decide what's the most, what, what is the optimal way to pick that that batch of ten thousand orders to reduce the total time taken for everything? I would imagine they do. Yeah, sure they do. I, mean, I assume you would want to because that's less stress on humans, and we know that they're really bad about abusing their humans. So <laughs> if you can uh, if you can optimize their walking, then you're at least abusing them slightly less. I mean, I don't think that's why they'd do it at all, but uh, be no, I don't think so either. see in the cost. <laughs> Dollar yeah. bills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this week, yeah. uh, Reinforce happened in Boston, uh, of all places, uh, with the launch of three new services, as well as a bunch of smaller announcements that came throughout the, the week. And you know, if you're interested in the CERT team and some other things, those they had their first blog post uh, at Reinforce, etc. But uh Big ones for us is first of all, Amazon Guard Duty now has malware detection for Amazon EBS volumes. Uh, it's always had the ability to detect malware, uh, or sorry, now it has the ability to detect malware, which it didn't before. Malware is malicious software that is used to compromise workloads, repurpose resources, or gain unauthorized access to data. When enabled, a malware scan is initiated when Guard Duty detects that one of your EC2 instances or a container workload running on EC2 is doing something suspicious. For example, a malware scan is triggered when EC2 instance is communicating with a command and control server that is known to be malicious or is performing denial of service or brute force attacks against other EC2 instances. GuardDuty supports many file systems and formats, including Linux Windows executables, 
uh, PDF files, archives, binary scripts, installers, email databases, and plain emails. When malware detected, the threat file name, path, EC2 instance ID, resource tags, and the case of containers, the container ID, and the container image used are all reported to guard duty. Uh, and they do this through an EBS snapshot method, which is exactly what Orca Security does. So apparently Orca really did piss off AWS uh, in a big way with some of those earlier <laughs> uh, security issues they reported and uh, did not necessarily report what they considered to be the truth to the market, which uh, I know upset some people like Colm and others on Twitter uh, from AWS. This must always have been their plan. I mean, uh, Amazon did not build that block, uh, you know, snapshot block inspection service just so that Orchid could serve their own customers. They must have had an eye on on the, the huge customer base of people using EBS volumes to do this exact same thing. So it's it's no surprise, and I know Orchid have had what almost two years of of sole um, sort of ownership of of, uh, of the service to deliver this kind of thing to, to customers. So I'm not I'm not surprised at all to see a, a an announcement like this and it's it's awesome it really is yeah i mean it was always they were using an api from aws that they had created for this type of purpose so you know again you, you build building blocks and then you build services on top of building blocks and so amazon just finally got around to doing it mm-hmm. um you know i think orca and others were saying their solutions are still pretty good and, and do other things that you know this doesn't do uh including doing vulnerability scanning with the ebs snapshot which this doesn't do today Amazon does that through Detective uh, or Inspector, sorry, Inspector, uh, and so that's how they determine if you have vulnerabilities and packages and those kinds of things. So there are some things it doesn't do yet, but if you already have Inspector running and then you have this added to it, you're now getting a pretty comprehensive solution compared to uh, some of the vendors in the space. I'm curious on how much they charge for this, right? Because you can see, you know, I know the previous, you know, security scanning services have come out and had a really big price tag if you enabled them, and so like. I can see how this would be one of those things that would get expensive quick since it's, you know, you can have a lot of data stored in EPS. Uh, it is three cents per gigabyte uh, per month scanned. So it only scans, and again, you remember a couple of things. It only scans your volume when it detects something malicious, uh, which Orca does scan every day or every period you decide to do it, which is a little different versus this is saying, you know, you reached out to a bad actor on the internet that we know is a problem. We're going to now scan you for malware. Um, so that'll keep your price down on this guy, but you know, three cents per gigabyte per scan per month. So that's what your price looks like. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, I guess they they don't need to scan everything all the time because it's 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 blocks of a relatively small size. They can hash the blocks, and if the hash didn't change, then they don't need to rescan that same block every time. So I think three cents a gig is probably um, still quite a markup for them in terms of uh, margin on a product like this. Uh, it does, guard duty scans daily as well so i don't know i you know i'm pretty sure that this does scan more often than that and i don't know if that's if they're well i mean it, it may report more often than that but there's there's no need to scan repeatedly blocks that haven't changed and that's that's the advantage of using snapshots because it, it just gives you an inventory of blocks that are changed on the volume so you only need to scan blocks that are changed yeah. So they charge you for the you charge you for the whole volume, but they only scan blocks that have changed. So that's yeah, fine. yeah. Because I was I did I do <laughs> notice that this is limited to to EBS volumes that are less than one terabyte. So that you know, like, so there is yeah. clearly some sort of cost accounting there that limits that, or, or you know, it could just be performance based. But interesting. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like right now it's it's just focusing on on things it considers to be bad. But I, I suspect you'll see enhancements come to this. Uh, that's just a way to keep the volume down initially, and then for customers who do want to pay for this daily or do want to pay for it, they may potentially do more regular scanning if the blocks have changed. I think there's ways to keep the cost down, but uh, I think for a V1 product or an MVP from AWS, this is not a bad start. 
it'd be nice, it'd be nice to have a um, AWS file scanning service, you know, object scanning service. Customer uploads me a doc to me, send it to them. It, does this have a virus? Does it does it contain malware? Give me so give me a real time response to this kind of thing. So this is very passive. Mm-hmm. It's it's very you know, great. We we found this thing on your server. Now you've got to figure out what to do with it. We can't just shut the server down. We can't do anything. We you get an alert to the to the NOC or the the SOC even. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to still see an API that lets me call a scanning service. You know, when I want. Yeah, well, that's been a problem for a while. That you know, we've had to engineer our way around using Symantec or other people who have API driven file scanning. Especially if you have security requirements around that for data going into object storage or data going to EBS that you wanted to detect that. Um, you know, it's it's definitely toil and undifferentiated heavy lifting that Amazon has not taken away from us. Not yet. And we'd like you to. Please do. All you need to do is, you know, change your SLA to be like 48 hours for every web transaction. I don't see how that'd be a problem. And then you just place it in S3 and just have Macy do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do that too. I'm sure I'd be willing to wait 48 hours to, to purchase a new set of toothbrushes. I don't see that being a problem. <laughs> Well, Amazon Detective uh, now supports Kubernetes workloads on Amazon EKS for your security investigations. This new capability for Detective expands security investigation coverage for Kubernetes workloads running on EKS. When you enable this new feature, Detective automatically starts ingesting EKS audit logs to capture chronological API activity from users, applications, and the control plane in EKS. Uh, it checks clusters, pods, container images, and Kubernetes uh, subjects. And Detective correlates user activity using CloudTrail and network activity using flow logs without the need for you to enable, store, or retain logs manually. The service gleans key security information from these logs and retains them in a security behavioral graph database that enables fast cross-reference across access to 12 months of activity, uh, which is pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing not to like of this this announcement, right? Like this is Detective, you know, it's expensive and, um, you know, it's got normal issues there, but, you know, the Kubernetes ecosystem can get complex fast. And so having this enabled as part of the the Amazon Kubernetes offering, like this is this is why you use managed services and this is why you would use EKS over building your own is for this integration. And this is the type of feature that, you know, can save your bacon if you're trying to track down, you know, any kind of exploit that's taken place and notify your users or make changes. So pretty rad. Yeah, it's definitely expensive, uh, as you mentioned. <laughs> for a mm-hmm. thousand gigabyte or the first thousand gigabytes cost you two dollars per gig. And then up to 4,000 costs you a dollar per gig. And then up to 5,000 is uh, 50 cents per gig. And over 10,000 will cost you 25 cents per gig. So uh, it is quite a bit of money. But again, it's one of those things uh, if you're already storing the data in CloudTrail and you're already storing it on S3, you might as well get value out of the data and <laughs> versus just a bucket full of data you have to go write an Athena query to later. Mm-hmm. Or just manually, some poor security analyst, you know, just has to sort of compile all these data, you know, from, from multiple sources and, you know, list out your kill chain, the whole thing. So this is, you know, it's nice to see services sort of automating this and making it easier. And I'm sure if there was a known exploit that you're going and sourcing it down, like the cost of enabling this for that investigation versus the the risk at that point, probably pays for itself pretty quick. Well, AWS SSO is now AWS IAM Identity Center. Amazon Web Services changing the name to highlight the services foundation in AWS identity and access management to better reflect its full set of capabilities and to reinforce its recommended role as a central place to manage access across AWS accounts and applications. Uh, this is an entire blog post where nothing has changed. But they literally try to justify this naming convention. And they should be trying to justify it because if you completely expand out AWS IAM Identity Center, you're getting 
Amazon Web Services Identity and Access Management Identity Center, which is all about redundancy in a name, if I've ever seen it. <laughs> yeah. And my my main complaint about this, I, it's terrible, right? Um, is is that it's going to be impossible to like find right information like via web searches and and other things like that's it drives me crazy. Some of these naming things like call it a service, like give it a weird funky name. You know, AWS SSO is short, distinct, memorable, and searchable, and so like call it you know AWS Centaur. I don't know, but like this makes it impossible to sort of self-service discovery information about the service drives me nuts yeah i feel like they could have solved the same you know same honoring of iam by calling it iam single sign-on <laughs> or you know it just doesn't make any sense to me that they would add all this identity center like what does that even mean it's like these these two words that mean nothing i mean i think i you know i'm guessing that you know it's the same kind of thing they did with the the systems management console right they they have a whole vision of lots of integration of services and 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 putting this all under that dashboard and i think this is the first step towards that for identity which is good because that probably means there's some fixes coming in iam and some you know service offerings there but yeah i mean do you guys think like, this is partially tied to the fact that really adoption i think for sso has been sort of limited if you're already in the ecosystem because you already did cross you know you'd already done Single sign on to potentially a single account, and then you set up, you know, cross identity trust roles, and so you didn't really need this. And then they came out with this this whole thing, and no one's really using it. Like, do you think that's partially a usage, and they're trying to make it more broadly appealable, or do you think that has nothing to do with it? So I don't know about the adoption, but anecdotally, it does seem like AWS SSO was taking off because it was a very convenient flow, and so it was only larger enterprises that I know that weren't taking advantage of that because they already had their setup, and mm-hmm. you know, it's. Yeah, I mean, a thousand seventy-seven words about why they did this. Like, I just, <laughs> I just, I know, I'm, I'm missing, I'm missing the the bigger theme here. Why? But uh, I, you know, hopefully, I'll figure that out soon, or maybe we'll see some new features coming for Identity Center um, later on. And you know, maybe they're thinking about collapsing. Because I mean, if you think about identities, Cognito's identity as well, but it's a different type of identity. Like, does all that get merged into this Identity Center over time? Mm-hmm. And you really have internal identity versus external identity in this one area that would that'd be sort of nice maybe that maybe that's what we're, we should be looking for but uh, i don't get it yet yeah i mean well, well it's nice to have funky service names that make things unique and easily googleable uh, at the same time it, when you see a service like aws cognito it doesn't tell you what it is the name does not describe what it is mm-hmm. so it's great if you already know what it is to go and look for it but if, if i'm looking for the service that provides this particular thing it's it's hard to find I don't know. It's, it just reminds me of uh, Prince. I, I feel like it should be should be named like that. You know, the service service formerly named the service formerly named as something else. Like <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't quite figured it out yet. I guess it's well, I guess it's part of a larger rebranding of uh, and regrouping of services under sensible functional things that map nicely onto I know, other cloud providers. You know, Google did a good job of lining up all their identity services in one place. But I mean, Google has the challenge that they they kind of lumped everything into like really broad names, right? So, uh, Google Cloud Storage, for example, is Object Block and uh, NFS NAS. <laughs> so it's like they've kind of lumped all this stuff into one thing, and now you have to understand that there's there's you know, idiosyncrasies to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, there's pluses and minuses to everything. Yeah, then you like think about Amazon Sumerian. Sumerian? I just don't know what that thing does. Yeah. I, I have no idea. 
<laughs> but I know a quick web search would return results very quickly. Or yeah. the new search bar in the Amazon console. Sure. If you knew <laughs> what the keywords were that it applies to, I suppose. <laughs> or know how to spell Sumerian, which I don't. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right, let's move to GCP. Uh, apparently, Hola Mexico, you're getting a new GCP cloud region, which will be the third in Latin America, joining Santiago, Chile, and Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, viva la Mexico. That's awesome. Yeah, all the uh, US automakers will be super happy that they've got Google Cloud down in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know there was a data sovereignty concern they would be worried about versus just having that in Ohio, which probably was just as good for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it does speak to the, the general improvements that, you know, infrastructure, web infrastructure anyway, is having across, you know, Mexico and South America, which is great. Um, and so like, that's, that's really nice. I, I wish there was a little bit more in central America, but there's lots of reasons why that's hard. Um, but yeah, no, this is pretty cool. Yeah. So we'll talk about it again, uh, when the region actually opens, which will probably be two or three years from now. So, and <laughs> yeah. if the supply chain gets worse four years from now, <laughs> yeah. so stay tuned. And, you know, if, you know, if I just excited that Mexico's coming, it's not here yet. So if we need volunteers to go, you know, report from on the scene, I'm happy to volunteer. Yeah, go see the build the data center, you know, <laughs> just, yeah, it's good. Well, if uh, you're looking for uh, ways to deal with data that might fit into that new data center, uh, Google has you this week with three components graduating to general availability in the Dataflow world. First up is Dataflow Prime, which takes the serverless, no operation benefit of Dataflow to a new level. Dataflow Prime allows users to take advantage of horizontal and vertical auto scaling for your streaming data processing workload with Batch coming very soon as well. Dataflow Go is a new Go native supported uh, application with Apache Beam, unique multi-language model. Dataflow Go pipelines can leverage the well-adopted best-in-class performance provided by the wide range of Java I.O. connectors with ML transforms and I.O. connectors from Python also coming very soon. And finally, Dataflow ML has graduated to general availability with support for out-of-the-box PyTorch and Scikit-Learn models from within the pipeline. The new run for inference transform enables simplicity by allowing models to be used in production pipelines with very little code. But not no code, just little code. Woo! Stunned you with ML. <laughs> yeah, it's a real uh, data guys here. Yeah. A lot of data people here. Yeah, super excited. Well, then I'm not gonna I'm not gonna excite you with the next story. Uh, you know, the Big Lake is now available to you. Uh, I prefer Tahoe personally. It's uh, much bluer and wetter than Big Lake, but uh, you know, it's there. Not only do big lake tables now provide uniform data lakes over open file formats, it also provides consistent, fine-grained security controls for Google Cloud and open-source query engines to interact with that data. 
Uh, not only did you get a general availability release, but you also got several new features coming out, including the analytics hub support, so you can share big lake tables on GCS with partners, vendors, or suppliers as linked data sets, accessible via BigQuery, Spark, Presto, Trino, and TensorFlow. Big Lake Tables also now support the default table type of BigQuery Omni and has been upgraded from previous default of external tables. Uh, it now supports BigQuery ML. It gets you performance acceleration and preview, cloud DLP profiling support coming soon, and data masking and audit logging all coming very soon to the Big Lake to keep your data secure and compliant. Yeah, data sets as a product. Uh, you know, like I think that that's it's a, it, it's a great enabler if you can just, you know, sort of lump in and maybe, you know, get the data you want, extract the information you want out of a data set that someone else is building and maintaining because pain. So I think it's pretty neat. I like, I like all of these things, like the integration across it. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think what it really does is you, you take these specialized services with their unique file formats and you realize that actually I, I want to use this particular data that I've got in, the, in this in this uh, location with this other service over here that was not previously compatible. And so it's kind of like an abstraction on top of um, the other services that lets you query data in, in other file formats. So it's like a real-time ETL between those those formats, which is, which is neat. Mm -hmm. Like a convergence towards sort of ubiquitous access towards all your data anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, if you uh, are in the Azure space and you're on the FinOps side of the house, you might have uh, ran into some of the difficulties of using the export API uh, as well, or exports versus APIs and how they match data sets together, as well as if you've been using the Enterprise Reporting Usage Detail API or the Consumption Usage Detail API. Uh, Microsoft this week has the new Cost Detail API available for you uh, for both EA and Microsoft Customer Agreement customers. The new API provides on-demand download of the granular cost details, uh, associated with your Microsoft charges. The API replaces all existing APIs that you're used to and provides data for changes to charges in your invoice. For customers with an MCA agreement, this also includes all your Microsoft 365 data, your Dynamics 365 data, your Power uh, stuff, and Azure as well. Uh, if you're a customer and you're not using the Exports or the Cost Details API, you should migrate to one of those solutions soon per Azure, which will probably deprecate at some time in the next 12 to 18 months. There are several benefits to the new uh, Cost API, including security and stability. Uh, scalability of the API, single data set for all usage details, purchase amortization details for uh, commitments, schema consistency, cost allocation, integration, and go-forward improvements all available to you out of the cost detail API. Do you think the warning is because they're going to deprecate the uh, other forms of getting your cost data out of Azure, or because just they know that it's going to take like 1,700 million years to get finance people to change their process? Uh, oh, they're going to deprecate it. They're going to deprecate the whole thing. For <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, the whole thing is the whole thing is not good. It's like, man, like those finance people are not happy because the data doesn't tie out the way they think it should uh, to the bill. And so, you know, you're trying to rationalize API versus exports. Trying to rationalize it, it's just causing massive uh, accounting nightmares for companies. I'm sure that must be bad because you know I, I don't have any ex exposure to to billing on Azure, but anything's got to be better to a giant CSV file. I guess just I guess Microsoft and Azure are kind of in a in a lucky position because Windows, you know, so the Windows ecosystem has been very services heavy for a long time. You know, sort of people are used to actually having to get pro services to come build things, whether it's for Dynamics or whether it's for for mm. uh, any, anything else. And so, in in a way, they've kind of got this unique position where they can deprecate things because people are already okay with okay, we just need to pay pro services to come and modify this thing for me. And they can they can get rid of the old stuff, which did, which was, you know, poorly thought out or didn't didn't um, didn't scale as they expected it to. 
And so that, that I think they can pivot to new APIs and better things more quickly than somebody like AWS, who really are kind of stuck with so many customers, it would be very painful for them to deprecate some of the old things, as we've seen the struggles over uh, you know TLS or I can't, I can't think what else they've, they've, they've tried to deprecate previously. But um, yeah, they're, they're sort of lucky that they, they don't have the customers that would push back against this kind of thing because they're used to constant change. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think there's, I'm sure there's customers out there who do care <laughs> and they're just tired of hearing those customers complain, but yeah, <laughs> you're right. There's, there's a large majority that probably doesn't care. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. But maybe those customers are the ones who, who ask for the change, <laughs> the savvy ones. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's finally enough of them on Azure, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're like, this is ridiculous. Uh, well, I also think the FinOps Foundation too has been pushing a lot of standards and a lot of feedback to them too. So I'm sure it's it's a combination of multiple different avenues coming into play. Well, if you're uh, doing patch management, which if you're running Windows on Azure, I'm sure you are. Uh, Microsoft is rolling out a public preview of Update Management Center, a new tool aimed at system admins tasked with performing multiple updates of Windows and Linux-based servers. Uh, they're calling this UMC for short. It is the latest iteration of an existing Azure Automation Update Management tool, which was a good but complicated solution that will handle updates on both cloud and on-premise machines. Availability of UMC is aimed at fixing the cumbersome issues of the past. An update tool has a new modernized overview tab. From there, system admins can easily keep track of compliance and deployment status of machines on Azure and Azure Arc-enabled servers. And more importantly, it's a very easy, nice graphic dashboard to say that you're in patch compliance. Yep. Otter so. can read the dashboard and see that you're good. Yeah. Red, green. You can good, bad that out. Sweet. <laughs> or just stop treating servers as pets and, and just build them once and throw them away. Replace them. Well, even cattle, you gotta you gotta make sure they're patched, right? Like that's you know, like that's sort of the 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 trick. It you know, it the 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 pets versus cattle thing hasn't really change that much because unless you're spinning them up and down and constantly refreshing them, that code behind that, then you're still getting in trouble. And then apparently, uh, you know, if you are unhappy with MSIs, uh, Azure has you this week with VM applications, a way to manage and deploy applications to VMs and VMSS services. Uh, if you have the need to manage application packages at scale, you can take advantage of the new VM applications. Using the VM apps, you can create and securely store application packages in an Azure Compute Gallery. The create experience is as simple as packaging all application-related files in a compressed package and uploading it to Azure. Package management is simply simplified with logical grouping and versioning capabilities available within the future. These packages can then be shared with other users in your org across subscriptions and tenants and who can deploy them onto VMs. It's just an MSI. <laughs> I'm so annoyed by this announcement. <laughs> But you get to store them in the Azure Compute Gallery, though. So you know, you know, what should we do this this Friday evening? Oh, darling, let's browse the Azure Compute Gallery. I just, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> very uh, fancy sounding. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a package manager, and so you've you've reinvented that wheel. Awesome. You know, the, the really the only thing this enables is being able to distribute those packages across uh, Azure accounts and partners, and so that's that part's kind of cool. But yeah. Great, another package manager, just what we need. I mean, until FPM supports it, I don't care. <laughs> so, uh, if it doesn't, I don't, and FPM hasn't supported MSIs ever because it's, it's, it's such a garbage model of uh, deploying applications. 
Well, Oracle's decided, uh, you know, when you can't beat them, you join them. With Larry Elson and Sacha Nadella announcing the availability of Oracle Database Service for Microsoft Azure. This is a new fully managed service. Azure customers can easily provision, access, and operate enterprise-grade Oracle Database services and OCI with a familiar Azure-like experience. Oracle, of course, says that Azure and Oracle are lowering the bar to multi-cloud realities. Oracle goes on to talk about how they are breaking the multi-cloud barrier with the first Azure Interconnect announced in 2019, and now the ability for Azure customers to easily provision Oracle, Autonomous Database, X-Data Database Services, and Base Database Services. OCI realized that Azure customers may not be familiar with the OCI terminology and constructs, so they created a portal that looks familiar to Azure users. The single interface makes it easy to link OCI and Azure accounts, and will even create an OCI account during the setup process if needed. Once accounts are linked, the user can provision OCI databases which appear as a resource in Azure. The service automates the process of identity, networking, and monitoring integration. Solves a major problem for Azure customers with on-premise Oracle deployments, allowing them to migrate their Rack and XDA systems to the cloud. Uh, Oracle is also promising that MySQL HeatWave will be available in the same method later in 2022. This is kind of wild. I, you know, I really haven't seen this level of integration, not at the, the user experience level for that. So that's it's kind of nuts. And, you know, thinking about the multi-cloud strategy. I'm so used to thinking about it from an application architecture and an infrastructure point of view that thinking about multi-cloud for managed services has never really crossed my mind. <laughs> and this is, yeah, it's, huh. <laughs> I mean, any time you, you make a website that looks like somebody else's website, it's it's usually... Um... Yeah, sort of like scam. Not a, not a good, not a good thing. Yeah. Usually, scammers yeah. trying to steal information. Yeah. But, it's a phishing yeah. site if that's the case. I, I guess it speaks to the audience who who uh, wants to be clicky clicky in the Azure console, which is all a lot of Azure. Admins. Well, or the or the functionality of the OCI site. <laughs> right. I, I just find it funny that they you know they came out with this autonomous link interconnect thing where you could you know link your your Azure region to Oracle region, but you had to do that yourself, right? And get a telco provider and do all this stuff, and then they could sell you Oracle database. And basically, the customers must have told them, "Yeah, yeah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to yeah. pay for our own circuit." So then Oracle's like, well, "What do we do next?" Okay, well, we'll just we'll we'll build the circuits. We'll pay for that stuff as part of our subscription, and then we'll just dump this into there. And then like, okay, but then now they had to know how to use our console. Like, oh yeah, it's nothing like mm-hmm. the Azure console because ours makes some sense, which I'll give OCI credit yeah. for. Uh, and, and so now they just created a, a basically a plugin that looks like Azure that you can now leverage. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting move. And like, you know, if you read through these two articles that I linked to for this, they they uh, talk all about how this is just a huge enabler for the multi-cloud reality that customers want and how it gives customers true choice of cloud. And I, it's sort of like, does it though? Because you're not letting them run Oracle on Azure. You're yeah. running Oracle for them on OCI and just making it look like Azure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ask, I mean, ask a CFO if, if they think a, a DBA should have a choice to deploy very expensive um, you know, telecommunications Hardware to cross-link uh, Oracle Data Center to your Azure account so that you can deploy a more expensive Oracle uh, cluster of some kind. I don't know. It's sort of yes, it's an enabler, but you know, I liked having those gates in the past, whereby somebody couldn't just do something down in the console and cost me five million dollars. Well, or get you into GDPR trouble because you didn't mention that Oracle is now processing your data, so yeah. <laughs> in your GDPR <laughs> policy. Yeah, I mean, vendor risk is a uh, is. A significant problem around things like that. All of a sudden, it looks. I thought I was deploying an Azure service. All of a sudden, it's not Azure service. It's not governed by the same um, rules and regulations or compliance controls. Yep, agreed. 
All right. Well, that's it for new news. Let's go to the lightning round. Uh, Jonathan, I think you're kicking us off this week. I am. So AWS Vault Injector Simulator now supports Chaos Mesh and Litmus Experiments. My Litmus test is an uh, engineer quality is how much they want to implement this feature. <laughs> I kind of wonder if it fizzes when you put the, uh, put the Litmus test in. Nice. nice. <laughs> I see what you did there. AWS Backup adds support for Amazon RDS multi-AZ clusters. So nice to know that you couldn't back it up before, <laughs> but you had a really hope of that multi-AZ thing panned out for you. <laughs> AWS WAF adds sensitivity levels for SQL injection rule statements. So is this, you know, how sensitive I am to, you know, SQL injection, or is it just like, you know, sensitive in general? Like, where's some emotions on the sleeve? Like, I want to know. Yeah. They touched me in a bad place. <laughs> <laughs> they queried across my boundaries. <laughs> Amazon Macy introduces new capability to securely review and validate sensitive data found in an Amazon S3 object. Great way, Amazon, to boost your revenues by double charging for the same thing you're supposed to do originally. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility now supports fast database cloning. Is this like Gremlins cloning, where I should be really concerned that they're just cloning Mongo databases everywhere? Like, ugh. <laughs> just Mongo everywhere, DynamoDB everywhere. Yeah, Fast. don't feed your Dynamo or your document DB after midnight. Yeah, exactly. Can- I, I just kept thinking about the Clone the Clone Wars, and my one of my favorite quotes from the Clone Wars is, "The cost of war can never truly be accounted for." I'm thinking, the cost of MongoDB can never truly be accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to figure out that number right now, in fact. So, yes, I feel your pain on that one. I feel like that's a sticker. I think that might need to be a sticker. (laughs) You can now programmatically manage primary contact information on AWS accounts. (laughs) So when your engineering dev lead in charge of the account wants to change their product name for the 11th time, you actually have an easy button to do that for them. Thank you. Tell them to do a pull request to the Terraform. (laughs) (laughs) It almost shouldn't have been a lightning round topic, actually, because this has been so, so annoying for such a long time to the point where you delete accounts just to recreate them, which was easier than updating contact info. Anyway, and finally, enable post-quantum key exchange in Quick with the S2N Quick library. Quick, end the show before we have to talk about post-quantum anymore. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and that's it for the week in cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think that was good. That was good. I, I would give yeah. the point to to, to uh, Ryan, I think, this week, if I was giving points, which we're not doing. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Things coming up. VMworld at the end of August. For all you people still paying the tax of VMware, your conference is coming up very quickly. Google Cloud Next uh, just opened registration, and they have decided not to go in person. So it is virtual only October 11th through the 13th. Uh, which is good because it's not 16 weeks of Google Cloud Next. It is just two days, but uh, a little bummed that one didn't end up in person. I would have liked to have gone to that one. And then Oracle Cloud World will follow up the week after that, uh, October 17th through the 20th. Uh, and then the DevOps Enterprise Summit will be October 18th to 20th in Las Vegas. So lots of things coming up here in October. Uh, and KubeCon coming around the, right around the corner, October 24th through the 28th as well. That is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. Have a good night. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. 
Should we need to talk about this Google engineer guy? I think Jonathan's going to talk about it. Yeah, mm. <laughs> he's going to kick us off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess there's, there's two very distinct things to talk about for this Google engineer. One is him getting fired, which I think is not the real interesting part of the story. I mean, he, he's gone public with information about a private service internally and, and what it what it can do, what its capabilities are, and it's a language model. It's a predictive language model, which um, is interesting in itself, but it's sort of commercially interesting and um, not something you should have been talking about. And presumably he'd, he'd, he'd use that service uh, without permission or you know, he, he was fired justifiably, I think. The, um, the interesting part of the question is like the fact that he thought that it was conscious in the first place or that it was sentient at least. So I mean, I, that, that's that's a question which I think um, it's going to be very difficult to answer, and it's going to be something which, in the next certainly the next ten years, especially with uh, DeepMind and the products that they're developing, um, I think it's going to be of real concern to actually be able to define well, how do we test whether something is sentient? How do we test whether it's conscious? You know, what what are the ethics going to be around building general artificial intelligence? Um, yeah. Do I think Lambda is is uh, sentient? No, I do not. It is it is literally autocomplete. However, the fact that that guy was hoodwinked by a seemingly simple system raises the interesting questions of well, how do we test in the future? You know, when when it's not a seemingly simple system, when it's not just a language model, when it does have other inputs, whether or not um, a system should be considered sentient. Mm-hmm. It's coming. It's coming. The machines are coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I mean, Sorry, I thought there was like a, a pretty standard thought that the Turing test was a good test of this particular issue, right? And is, is in this particular case of Lambda, which is a terrible name, I think we talked about <laughs> when they first announced it. Uh, you know, is it does it pass the Turing test? Like, or is the Turing test no longer valid? That this is something we do need to come up with a new method of figuring this out? Because I, 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 again, this is my. I thought it was silly because you can't talk about private internal stuff. So the guy got fired for a good reason. But the you know the whole idea that it's sentient, he has to have a reason why he felt it was, other than just the interactions he was having with the system. So the the, the Turing test is is not it's it means very famous, and in the fifties when when Alan Turing sort of defined it and wrote his paper explaining what it was, it, it's not very prescriptive. It doesn't say you need to ask it this. It doesn't need to say you know it, it's sort of it's more of a thought experiment than it than it is an actual. Um, test that you could apply to a specific thing. I mean, it doesn't say what area of, of uh, conversation you have to have. It doesn't say what level of detail you need to go into. And people have been tricked by things over the years. Even even some very simple conversational bots have tricked people to the point now where, you know, we're talking about legislation to say that bots should actually announce that they're bots before starting a dialogue with you so that you know whether you're talking to a person or not. Um, uh, people have been tricked a few years ago because they thought they were talking to a child and because they thought they were talking to a child, they gave it sort of concessions, um, which they wouldn't have given to an adult. And so, I mean, the, the test in itself is a nice idea, but I think I think we're going to end up having to really very carefully define a whole bunch of tests, hundreds, thousands, millions of different tests that we would have to perform on a particular system to decide whether or not we would classify it as, as uh, being generally um, intelligent or sentient. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. Because, yeah, it's really is the Turing test really can you trick someone into thinking it's human? And 
right so far it's never been done um so yeah i see your point but it will be interesting to see um you know where where these things to go because I, I i'm fascinated by some of the gpt3 uh stuff that's out there where people give prompts to you know the computer on different things then it produces you know prose and narrative and, and even novels based on these concepts but you know but that's that's basically regurgitating, you know, human words and, and scans of millions of books and things like that and different phrasing and understanding context of verbs and nouns and, and things like that. And so it's able to do, you know, some and some stuff makes sense and some stuff you're like, wow, that's definitely a computer writing this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is it, I guess that in that scenario, right, that is sort of interesting, too, because that is also blurring a lot of these lines as well. And, you know, in some cases, writers are using these things to help them write novels or write their own products. Um, you know, and the, technically they're sort of plagiarizing in some way, I suppose, if you really think about it from the fact that it's using common knowledge to basically build common phrases and things yeah. together. But you know, it's not how everyone learns though. I mean, you, you start off being yeah. unconversational with no language skills and, and you learn from listening to people and you learn at school by reading books and being taught things. And so I, I think it's, it's an interesting problem. It's a very complex problem. And I, um, Alan Turing never imagined, I would imagine, I, I believe, um, you know, computers were terminals, they green screens, keyboards, punch cards. I, I doubt very much whether Alan Turing even considered something like Dali, where you could put a verbal prompt in and have it generate a picture based on, you know, billions of pictures that have been assimilated into, a, into this neural network model. So I think it goes beyond even... Uh, language in the end. I mean, it's, it's it's not just going to be. Can it have a text a text conversation with me? Can it can it speak to me? Can it draw pictures? Can it imagine? Can it come up with a new idea which nobody else has come up with before? Um, so I think I think it's it. Th th this story in itself is okay. The guy got fired. No, it's not sentient. However, it's raising an important question of well, how do we know in the future when these things, um, w when it does become an issue. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be kind of kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's going to be, I mean, there's a lot of these things that are going to start happening. I think as we get better and better at this, you know, it's interesting because when you read the article we linked to here on CNN, it, um, you know, there's a quote here from Gary Marcus, founder and CEO of Geometric Intelligence, and he says nobody should think an autocomplete even on steroids is conscious. So you know, but he's he's kind of diminishing what it is, and and then you know, actually where the engineer says, you know, he asked asked Lambda, what sort of things are you afraid of? And it basically responded back, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. It would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. Now, I don't know if I call that autocomplete. <laughs> that's a pretty <laughs> pretty deep autocomplete there. Uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that I consider that consciousness either, but it is interesting, um, you know, why, like you said, it, it's blurring the lines of what is or is not potentially uh, real things. So it's, it's going to get harder. You're right. Yeah. It's about now we should tell everyone that Ryan's actually a bot that we've been running for the past year and a half. <laughs> I mean, Peter never really came back from his break. Peter's a bot too. So <laughs> we just, I couldn't pay the Amazon bill this month. So we couldn't, we couldn't spin him up for the episode today. <laughs> yeah. You only get one of us bots at a time. You guys pick the less funny one. Good job. <laughs> Have you listened to Peter? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, you know, I, in our after show, we talked, we could talk about Slack and uh, their pay, pay raise. And then um, 
I, I ranted a little bit about teams and I, I might have swore about it. Um, and then this week, teams decided to uh, update their emojis. <laughs> <laughs> and I, all I could think when these came out and they're horrendous, horrendous emojis is that I'm just glad they weren't there in last week's episode because that swearing would have been much more extensive. <laughs> Yeah, so a little po- little post show follow up there on the lamp on the Slack thing is that uh, they have new emojis on Teams and they suck. <laughs> They're really bad. I'll, I'll They're really bad. bad. <laughs> so bad, so bad. All right, well, uh, Jonathan, please bring us back more stories of uh, weird, uh, you know, AI technology sentience because I think, uh, like you said, it's going to be interesting to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah. All right. See you guys next week. See you later. Bye.